0: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches.
1: Hello and joining you from a cold, fiercely cold Berlin, Baltic-feeling Berlin today on the 519th birthday of Nostradamus. My name is Daniel Freeber, and I'm the host of this week's episode of The Cycling Podcast in which we'll be looking not into the future as old Nostra used to, into the recent past that is to say the cycling season just gone over the last few weeks we've elected our ride of the year we've had our comeback of the year last week and this week we're going to be focusing on our men's team of the year although incidentally they do have a women's team anyway more of that later in what threatens to be another long very long episode, in fact. Sorry to the producers, and but first, I'm going to introduce my guest for the first part of the show. Joining me today, not from Brandenburg, but the Balearics. In fact, the no doubt still sun-kissed town of Soya in the. Tramontana Mountains, it's a man who has earned justified acclaim for his commentary not only on cycling but sports as diverse as golf and volleyball. Indeed, as his former flatmate, I can tell you that he's been known to apply his commentary skills, even to me, trying to cook him a risotto. Once memorably lamenting, Oh no, oh no. <laughs> When he saw me adding the vegetable stock and thereafter declaring, it's all right, mate, I'll just have bread. (laughs) In fact, that wasn't wasn't just once, they used to have them regularly. No, he is no Epicurean, but he is a polymath and the second most illustrious native of Accrington after the second seer slash clairvoyant to get a mention in this week's pod, that is Mystic Meg. But the guest, our guest this week, is television's Rob Hatch. You, Rob? You're not too well. I know this. Um, um, I hope Nostradamus
2: can predict when I'm going to get better. If not, I'll have to go for Mi- Mystic Meg because, uh, yeah, I'm kind of a bit <laughs> fed
1: up of what is it? whole soothers and all that rubbish. But we'll get there. You should. We do have quite an international audience, so Rob, perhaps you could explain who Mystic Meg was is is hopefully, hopefully she's still alive. Well, we didn't have a lottery, did we in in UK until what late nineties? And
2: they brought this Mystic Meg in. She was a an unknown personality until then, and she had like a crystal ball. <laughs> Being very kind, and she and you know she she was going to predict who was going to win the lottery. Apparently, um, I'm not sure the success rate was that great
1: because obviously she'd be she'd be getting ten percent once every week, you know. We should really, well, should perhaps see if Mystic Meg is still around, whether she follows professional cycling, maybe get her on on the other side of New Year, when we start to preview the coming season, maybe she can make some predictions for us, but Rob, we're mainly going to be looking back this week, but... We haven't had you on for a couple of weeks. What have you been up to the last couple of weeks? Champions League, track Champions League
2: cycling. Um, I went to a lovely event um, at Canyon Headquarters in uh, Koblenz. I'd never been there before, that part of Germany. That was very, very nice on the river there. But yeah, uh, what else have I been up to? And then travelling home, I was away, uh, obviously, for about two weeks or so. Um, saw some family back in UK after the London round of the Champions League, so that was nice. And then I did a little bit of cyclocross uh, commentary at the weekend, which was also very nice. A lot of
1: variety, Daniel. Well, who knows? Maybe we'll talk about cyclocross. Who knows? I wouldn't like to predict anything in spite of the um, the auspicious date as far as predictions are concerned and uh, the previous references to Nostradamus in particular. And we are going to get on with the news roundup, Rob. We've got a lot, a lot to get through, a lot of news this week. Um, I'm going to prioritise quantity over quality today because... Um, there is a lot, um, as opposed to prioritising waffle over quality, which is the usual way on the cycling podcast. Um, in fact, should we start, Rob? Let's start with cycling. It'd be good to start um, instead of talking about Mystic uh, my, Megal there, yeah. Yes. Um, cycling cross fans, don't be offended. Well, I, w- I was going to be pretty breezy with the cycling roundup this week, but in fact, Rob, since you were commentating on it, I'm going to defer to you, and you can tell us what happened in Dublin at the weekend. Well, I do have a memory like a sieve, so I'll try my best. It was only a couple of days ago, wasn't it? But um,
2: we had uh, Wout van Aert competing Only the second cross of the season. He came second in his first cross in, in, in Antwerp. And, well, he put the headline performance in, really, because he was stopped not once, not twice, but three times. And the third time, he ended up with someone's towel in his mech. That meant he had to run backwards, change his bike, get back on his bike, make up 25 seconds to get back just to the front of the race, then attack and beat the likes of Tom Pidcock, from Turin out, Iserbit and all the rest. Tremendous performance. And I would say one of the, the best wins, I think, that I've ever seen him pull off on the cross field. That Wat for Not wonderful win came straight after yet another victory for Femme van Empel, who really has alongside Puck Peters and moved the sport of cyclocross on to a different planet, really. You've got people who were up there in the last couple of years who are struggling to get on the podium at the minute. Denise Bitzema just about managed it for the first time this season in the World Cup. But it was another superb performance by Fem van Empel. And what a crowd in Dublin. What a crowd out there. What an atmosphere. It was up at the Sport Island campus where... The former Taoiseach Leo Varadko said that they're going to build a a velodrome very soon. So that was absolutely brilliant to see. And top-level cycling, the very top-level cycling back in Ireland for the first time since, I think, the Giorgio d'Italia in 2014. So an
1: absolutely brilliant party at the weekend. Rob, uh, Wout van Aert seemed to, well, he obviously enjoyed himself. He won. He was very complimentary about the Dublin crowds, the, the Dublin course indeed. Um, It's been a good few days for his great rival Mathieu van der Poel, although he wasn't in Dublin at the weekend. MVDP's conviction for assault on the night before the World Road Race Championships in Wollongong was overturned on appeal earlier this week. You may remember that van der Poel um, pleaded guilty at the time. Well, the Sydney Downing Centre District Court ruled that his sentence should be replaced by a 12-month conditional release order. Basically, if he doesn't re-offend or do anything naughty, again, he's a free man. And partly because of the defendant's previous good behaviour, also because the victims of his ire in the um, alleged altercation had provoked him somewhat, as we saw in some of those videos that went viral. But this is slightly confusing, isn't it, Rob? I mean, he, he... pleaded guilty at the time, partly to sort of attenuate what whatever action was going to be taken, I think to, well, to get out of Australia as, as, as quickly as possible. Um, now, well, I think another factor that weighed in this verdict or in the appeal being successful was that um, the, the judge or the man, magistrate ruled that as a, a sportsman who travels frequently and may, who knows, find himself wanting to or needing to travel to Australia again in the next few months or years. Um, that aspect of the sentence as well, because I think he was was he effectively banned from travelling back to Australia. I think in terms um, of accepting
2: the guilty verdict, again, uh, the big caveat is that I don't know what I'm talking about on Legal Matters here. <laughs> <laughs> so please forgive me if I'm wrong. But that, how I understood it when I, when I read the reports coming out was that if you pleaded guilty, you weren't allowed to return for something like three years. Um, So I think that might have been something to do with it.
1: Yes, and that was just slightly too severe. I mean um, Australia notoriously
2: analysis. notoriously strict on on immigration matters, um, however you look at it, whether you know I, I always find it quite quite strange on on that front. I think we saw the same with things at the Australian Open and that sort of stuff didn't with the other year as well um, but no good good news for for Fonderpool Poel, again, without having any knowledge of the case or being on the come side on uh, one side or the other. Good news I think, in a sporting sense that he 'll be able to go back and compete
1: there. Rob, talking of legal matters and our relatively loose grasp thereof, uh, last week we said that the German gentleman whose heavy goods vehicle is believed to have knocked over and killed Davide Ere Berlin in November had been identified and located in northwest Germany. We also mentioned potential legal problems that could arise because of discrepancies between German and Italian law and how this could affect some more any extradition process uh, now there have been conflicting reports about this i've also been contacted by people since last week's podcast saying that the process may be less complicated than first believed that said at the time of recording still no arrest and um, the latest info coming out of italy suggests there will only be one if or when the public prosecutor in vicenza where the incident took place requests an international arrest warrant um that may well happen imminently the the autopsy on david Rebellion was supposed to be conducted yesterday i believe the 13th of december but it was postponed to the 19th of december that also may affect the timing of what happens next uh, last week rob we got definitive confirmation that b hotels the b hotels team would neither realize its grand ambitions to upscale in 2023 with the signing of mark cavendish nor indeed exist next year this has left numerous riders male and female in the lurch teamless while others have already communicated their future plans Still nothing solid on Cavendish, although new rumour is doing the rounds about the American pro-conti team human-powered health. Meanwhile, the ex b man Pierre Rolland has announced that he is retiring from professional cycling at the age of 36. Um, he does so with a palmarès that includes Tour de France stage wins at Alpe d'Huez and La Toussouir, a Giro stage win in Canazei in the Dolomites, fourth place overall in the 2014 Giro d'Italia, which I'd completely forgotten about. He was also robbed the winner of the white jersey in the 2011 Tour and at the time touted as a future Tour winner. Um, I was reminded of that actually when I was researching this episode today. Thomas uh, Vauclair was among those who tipped Pierre Rolland as a future Tour winner in 2011. Um, His legacy also includes many a a good-natured meme about his attacks, Attack de Pierre Rolland became a well a, a sort of a social media twitter cliche didn't it um even more famous i think rob than attack the uh, who is the who who am i thinking of the coffee Coffee rider? rider yes red jersey in um, the Nicolaide. yes <laughs> <Nicolaide>. <laughs> um, he, commentator's dream and and
2: commentator's nightmare at the same time those things as well because you you say it and you sort of realize oh god i'm going into sort of partridge territory or This is sort of, <laughs> but it's one of those things that it's one of them ones.
1: Rob, Pierre Roland, how you will have seen, you've watched, commentated on Pierre Roland a lot over the years. How will he be remembered? Will he be remembered as someone who didn't quite live up to his potential? Or maybe someone whose potential was slightly misconstrued, um, overstated? I'd go in that
2: latter category, Daniel, actually, yes. Um, I think he suffered from, again how do I word this? Uh, Suffered from the fact that, you know, he was born in France. Uh, all the media hype that, that goes on with you. And,
1: um, at the end of a very lean period. Exactly. I
2: mean, French cycling has gone, you know, from strength to strength, hasn't it, in the last decade since he was doing these his white jersey thing and getting good results at the Giro and things like that as well. But, like you, I had to remind myself that he was in the white jersey, the winner of the white jersey there, and uh, what he done at the Giro d'Italia as well. And I think that was this year, I think I was doing, it might have been the Tour de France research or f- research for another race where he was expected to be prominent and we were going to get many of those, attacked de Pierre Hollande and things like that. Um, and and I basically I wanted something new to say about him because... <laughs> because i think i th- i was sort of wary of getting stuck into that stereotypical image i think that we all have of pierre Hollande, of maybe not realizing that 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 potential and, and and on on reflection seeing what he did i think he probably did overachieve at the start rather than than anything else and i tell you what he's not got a bad palmarès though as yeah i think uh, not many people would complain about that with you know with the stages he won at the tour de france and things like that he, he's had a bloody good career
1: and I think the, the real window of opportunity for Pierre Roland was the three year period that he spent at the at Cannondale and during those three years he was often dogged by misfortune bad luck and um, and he, he sort of turned into a more of an opportunist than a climber who was going to win races mountain stages of Grand Tour sort of a la pedal from the from the elite group but a very fine career nonetheless Rob talking riders who spent much of their career in the team formerly known as Bonjour Bouygues Telecom uh, uh, Europe Car Which is the case, was the case with Roland. We had some sad news earlier in the week with the death of Wadjar Benetur. Benetur was 50 years old, only 50 years old. And he was found dead in a hotel room in Bali on December the 11th at the start of this week. The cause of death had not or has not been released at the time of recording. Rob, before we get on to our biggest story of the week, I thought we'd also mention something most of our listeners may have missed, and that was a story in Sports Pro, which covers sports business news. Um, This week, they published the findings of a Scandinavian study on the economic impact of the Grand Depart in Denmark in July. The purportedly independent study found that the Grand Depart drew more than 722,000 international and domestic tourists who generated... 757 million Danish kroner in that's a lot basically translated um 100 and, the equivalent of 107.6 million US dollars in economic impact the researchers found 80,000 editorial mentions of the Grand depart over the year leading up to the tour 60% of which were from the international media reaching an estimated average of 76 million potential daily readers Rob, I'm always quite suspicious of these studies. Um, we often get teams that commission studies into the economic impact of their sponsorships. In this case, I say it was purportedly independent. Um, there was one of the organisations responsible for the study definitely had a connection with the Danish Tourist Board and the kind of people who put on the part. So I'm slightly suspicious of that. However, this is very good news for ASO, isn't it? Because we've had Grand Depasse, um in the recent past, notably the, the Yorkshire Grand Depart, which was fated as a great success at the time. And then subsequently, years later, there were question marks raised about the economic impact of that and the legacy of that. But these figures are quite impressive, aren't they?
2: I think it drew a lot of visitors, didn't it, to Denmark? I think the crowds maybe in Yorkshire drew a lot of Brits there who'd never been to that sporting event before, Um, never really discovered what cycling was, never mind the Tour de France. They knew that there was this thing called the Tour de France. Uh, I think maybe the... um, the type and profile of people who went to those two grand Departs. Again, this is just pure speculation on my part, but having having been to the Yorkshire one, I, I'd suggest that that might be slightly different. Um, but it's very good news for ASO. It's probably good news for RCS as well, because they can be on the, the cocktails of that. And when they're trying to flog their product to the next people who they want to sell it to... You know, the, the next television deal, they can say, oh, hang on, this is in here as well. Sponsors who want to get involved. We know that every jersey sponsored. You know, 25 kilometers to go is sponsored, isn't it, in the Giro d'Italia? the sponsors everywhere. So it's good news for, I think, anybody who, who sells bike racing on, on a big scale. Um, like you, maybe a little skeptical of where these studies come from and what have you. Um, but again, I you know, without any other... Uh, information to the contrary i'm I'm not one to doubt it and you know just from personal experience i learned a lot more about denmark even not having been there this year i think you're Mm. all pretty um well versed in the fact that now the way we commentate these these grand tours a lot of time we're we're either in a studio in the uk or sort of somewhere else um just given the the economic and environmental impact of uh, how things go now um but i learned a lot about denmark Learn how to say some complicated words. Tried to anyway. I um, saw so it's beautiful coastline, um, and yeah, I think from that point of view, if if you're slightly curious, I think I think it, it works wonders.
1: Yeah, and just in terms of the general discourse at the moment about hosting grand major sporting events, whether it be the World Cup, which is going on at the moment in Qatar or the Olympic Games, a lot of countries have sort of fallen out of love with the idea of hosting, for example, the Olympics. We've had various cities in the past few years withdraw bids and you know the Tour de France and ASO they have been trying mostly successfully for quite a long time to position themselves as really the next rung on the ladder right beneath the World Cup Um, and the Olympics and and at the moment certainly are not sort of tarred with the same brush of um, or certainly places like Denmark you know there's there, there are none of the same question marks and issues and and well, none of the same controversy linked to things like sport washing um, that has been very much in the news as far as the World Cup is concerned. Rob, penultimate item on the roundup today is World Cup training camp, World Cup World Tour training camps, and um, they've been going on over the last. <laughs> I didn't realise that two. Messi was back here in Mallorca preparing for the final. There you go. Um, They've been going on the last week or two, mainly in Spain, a couple in Mallorca. Rob, up the road from you. Uh, Where are Bora? Bora down. Are they at the Robinson Club? I I tried Uh, to work out from their Strava files today where they were staying. I've heard a lot of complaints from teams that have been in Mallorca the last few years that when they've been over on the east of the island, a lot of the climbers have found that it was too far from the mountains for their taste. Yeah, I mean, and
2: from a, I, mean, I live over in the mountains, as you well know, and uh, just as a point in, uh, and again, I don't do anywhere near as many as kilometres as these guys, but I almost never ride on the other side of the island just because it's too far away. Um, and, you know, even if it, it's too far for a lot of guys, you've got to do proper training. They could ride there and ride back, but in these days of... Everything being measured to the, the nth degree. I'm not sure it is the right thing. I think... I remember going with you, actually. Did we not go to a Bora team launch at Hotel in Arenal, which is um, yes, close to Palma yes. itself? Um, I know that Ineos Grenadiers, they tend to stay up in on the north, and they're they about, do. what I would say, 20 kilometres ride. Not even that from the first climb they'd have to take on. Yeah. So... Um, they're pretty well set up and I also know that during the last couple of years when certain ho- hotels have been closed at certain times a year because of COVID restrictions, teams have been sort of going DIY and picking up small boutique hotels and things like that so I think that might be happening here as well and over on the mainland too um, but I'm not sure if anybody's doing that at the minute but I know that it's something that people are interested in for sort
1: of smaller scale training camps. Well, most of the teams are over on the mainland in the Calpe Denia area. Um, there have been a few media days too. And as always, this time of year, we'll a few things about race programs next year. Bora, we just mentioned them. They've told us that Jai Hindley will probably focus on the Tour de France, while Alexander Vlasov will target the Giro. Uh, meanwhile, UAE Tade Pogacar said that he would like to focus on the Giro d'Italia one day, but will again prioritize Tour de France in 2022. I think he's also said that he's going to do the Tour of Flanders again next year which is good news uh, finally Rob I mean no real surprises there are as far as Bora concerned I mean I was in a, a Bora um, I was speaking to Ralph Denk and Rolf Aldag yesterday in fact from the Bora training camp and they're quite realistic about Jai Hindley doing the Tour de France they don't expect him to beat Jonas Vingegaard or Tadej Pogacar but it's obviously going to be an important or well, sort of stepping stone for Jai Hindley with a view to maybe contending for the Tour de France in future years and of course as we know it's a pretty mountainous route with not much time trialling next year It suits him it suits him doesn't it if there ever was a Grand Tour that
2: would suit Jai Hindley that would be it but again no pressure I mean he's up against the ballers isn't he the world beaters and we must give Jai Hindley credit because you know it often goes forgotten doesn't it the winner of the Gira I think unless it was a really special race but the way he won it there it was special certainly after what happened a couple of years ago when he came so close and he's just been um, named as Australian Cyclist
1: of the Year. So, congratulations to Jai. Finally, in typically counterintuitive, ass about face cycling podcast style, we come last to the biggest story of the week, and that is Astana sacking Superman Lopez, um, or Normal Man, as uh, my friend Juan Carlos from Windsports in Colombia called him a couple of years ago. I think he will be henceforth known as Normal Man. Um, they have sacked him over what they called his probable connections with the spanish doctor marcos maynar who was arrested in june in connection with what the guardia civil in spain are calling operacion ilex ilex what's ilex rob do you know i'm not sure
2: not off the top of my head
1: and that is an inquiry into the illegal trafficking of medicines presumably for doping purposes the team had already suspended lopez in july then reinstated him in august But now there will apparently be no way back. Lopez himself has put out a statement to protest his innocence and state that he is not under investigation. He'll take legal action over what he has called his unfair dismissal. However, no sooner had that statement dropped than the Spanish newspaper ABC disclosed more details about Operación Ilex, including the Guardia Civil's suspicion that Maynard organized for the banned fertility drug menotropin to be delivered to López in Budapest before the start of the Giro in May. Again, according to ABC, the investigators also suspect that an injection of the drug and subsequent inflammation in one leg may have caused Lopez to pull out of the Giro in Sicily in the first week. He said, if you remember at the time, that he was suffering from a thigh injury. Um, also in the crosshairs of the investigators is Vicente Belda, former Kelme Diaz, who had mentored Lopez, has mentored Lopez for many years, and Belda's son, who's worked for Astana as a masseur. The pair of them, Belda and his son, and also Marcos Maynard, have been called to appear before the investigating magistrate in January. Uh, Rob, there's a real flavour of sort of yesteryear about this story. Marcos Minard is a name that people who followed sport for a long time will be familiar with. You'll certainly know it if you've, you're acquainted with the legal case that pitted Dario Frigo against Fasa Bortolo when the former's wife was caught trying to deliver banned drugs to the Tour de France in 2005, or if you know the history of the Maya Milanese um, Portuguese team at the start of the century. Um, I think Maynard actually had a 10-year ban at one point, but he served that ban. Uh, it all sounds really ugly, doesn't it? And you're right, it does
2: sound uh, a little 2006 uh, at times, certainly when you're will really getting involved and things like that. Um, obviously, like anybody following the sport, I hope, and I hope for Miguel Lopez's sake and everybody around him um, that it is, uh, you know, a false accusation and, and things like that. Um, but I'm afraid if there is any truth in it, then it looks difficult for, for Lopez to be riding at the top level again, doesn't it? <laughs> Certainly with the attitudes team. I mean, thankfully, teams' attitudes are not 2006, aren't they?
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out, because this is an investigation that has, well, it comes from Spain. It's been started in Spain. And, you know, we all, there's an irony about this in the sense that we all remember that for years it was very difficult to to get any kind of convictions or any kind of investigations um, to have any impact in international investigations. It was often in Spain that they would reach a roadblock. We certainly saw that with um Operacion Puerto. We've got Vicente Belda here who was in who was investigating in Operación Puerto and he was in fact he was cleared in that, so was Eufemiano Fuentes, the doctor at the at the center of um Operacion Puerto. Whereas here, um, as I say, it's all stemming from Spain. Belda, I mean, talking about sort of flavor of yesteryear, he was one of the great pantomime villains of a of a, a real sort of pantomime era in professional cycling. Mean, Belda used to, allegedly, there was, well, I don't think this was a, a, a legend. This actually used to happen. He would occasionally, in the te- in the Kelme team car, when his team, or he had decided that Kelme were going to kind of declare war on a particular stage race, usually at the Vuelta a España, he would don a Che Guevara um, Boina, I think they call them, a Che Guevara Beret, um, in the team car on his way to the start in the morning to send out the signal that Calme were about to lay the smack down.
0: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159.
3: Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. This is Lionel here, and I know that Daniel and everyone at the Cycling Podcast would like to join me in saying a big thank you to Super Sapiens for their support throughout the year, not just on a professional level, but also on a personal level. So thank you, Super Sapiens. And perhaps Super Sapiens can help you reach your goals in 2023. Their system of continuous glucose monitoring will give you insights into how your body responds to the food that you eat and your fueling strategy, but also how you respond to the stress and strain of training and racing and also to rest and recovery. And over time, you can tweak your fueling strategy to get the best out of yourself on event day supersapiens.com has everything you need to know you can order the sensors which will give you the minute by minute second by second uh, updates as to what your glucose level is doing and you can see those either on your smartphone or on the supersapiens energy band so go to supersapiens.com a few other things I'd like to mention before I hand back to Daniel. First of all, the Cycling Podcast has been invited to appear at Sports Pod Live, an event at King's Place in London's King's Cross in February. We're on on Sunday, February the 12th at 4pm to be precise. Sports Pod Live has already assembled a lineup of some of the biggest and best sports podcasts in the UK and we are delighted to be included among them. I think there are some more podcasts to be announced fairly shortly, but Daniel and I will be there with a special guest or two who we will confirm in the new year. But if you'd like to join us and hopefully many of you would like to come along, we'll put a link to buy tickets in the show notes and I'll also add it to the 1101 Cappuccino. Now, the 1101 Cappuccino, many of you may well have signed up for this. It's our regular or in recent weeks, it's been semi-regular email update direct from the cycling podcast HQ. Now, we do know that some people have had trouble signing up, perhaps because they've subscribed in the past and then unsubscribed and then the system wouldn't let them add the email address again. So they've not been receiving the updates. Well. We've migrated the whole thing across to Substack. So the 1101 Cappuccino is now on Substack. You can sign up at thecyclingpodcast.substack.com. And well, the 1101 Cappuccino is our chance to write to you and let you know what's going on at the Cycling Podcast. And we have put last week's update on there. Tomorrow's update will go live at around 1101, appropriately enough. And uh, this week, I'm writing a bit about Daniel's Friends of the Podcast episode where he went to the Indoor Velo Bowl to see Filippo Ganna break the World Hour record. Now, very lastly, before I hand back to Daniel, a mention for the Cycling Podcast map collection. The dot jersey is available in all sizes. There's one for Francois if he wants one. If you're listening, Francois, let me know what size because I know uh, you were disappointed that Czech didn't win. But uh, if you'd like a dot jersey, do let me know. And there's a range of accessories as well. Socks, casquette, bidon, all to go with the MAP jersey. Go to MAP.cc. And thank you very much for listening to all of that. Now back to Daniel for the rest of the episode.
0: The Cycling Podcast. For the latest news, views and interviews from the world of professional cycling.
1: We're going to move on. Um, As I've already said, the main feature of this week's pod is going to be about the team of the year for 2022. In fact, I can now reveal that it will be an interview with the man behind that team, the managing director, team principal, the mastermind Johnny of, Savio? of our team, sadly not. We need to feature, I need to call up Gianni actually, and he needs to update us on, well, we know a bit about his plans for 2023. We know he's going to have a Continental Division team next year, but we'll hear from Gianni in the next few weeks. Um, we'll move on anyway to that interview um, shortly, but since we didn't have a rider of the year in 2022, I thought we'd perhaps talk to someone who did... And uh, Ned Bolting's is a name and voice that will be familiar to most listeners. He's my colleague at ITV. In the summer, he's also the editor, of the Roadbook, which has become the ultimate companion to the professional cycling season, with some extraordinary stats, essays, and various other things relating to the year that was in professional cycling. You can order the Roadbook from the Roadbook.co.uk. And let's hear about it and about who were the riders of the year, as far as the Roadbook was concerned, from Ned. Well, I'm going to dispense with any niceties immediately, and we're going to get on to what has been the most unpopular feature throughout this 2023 or 2023. <laughs> I'm jumping ahead already. 2022. Cycling podcast year um, introduced during the Vuelta, the stage summary time trial. Everyone hated it. I got pelted with um, lots of hate mail, in fact. But um, <laughs> I continue to, to, to tease the listeners by periodically reintroducing it in different guises. Today we're going to have the not the stage summary time trial. We're going to have the sort of year in review time trial. It's ninety seconds. We have not chosen a rider. Um, male or female of the year. We've dispensed with that category, in fact. But someone, um, one of our our friends in the cycling media, um, has certainly done that, chosen riders of the year. He's going to have 90 seconds now to tell us who they are, why. He's donning his windproof onesie as we speak. He's about to slide down the ramp. Ned Bolting, um, editor of the road book We're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, you've got 90 seconds to tell us who was the road books, male and female riders of the year. 90 seconds, off you go.
4: Well, I'm going to waste the first five seconds to say it's just a delight to be part of such a failing project. Um, thank you very much, is that uh, the Daniel. <laughs> yeah, no, no the, 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 this, um, this feature that I've just blown the first 10 seconds away. We've actually got seven categories in the Riders of the Year for 2022. Let's start with the the big two. The Female Rider of the Year was an absolute shoe in for the jury um, who pretty much unanimously had to choose Anamiek van Fluten, possibly against their better judgment as well because I'm not sure, and this is something perhaps we can discuss how um, uh, um what good it is to have Annemiek e. van Fluten winning absolutely everything as soon as the uh, road goes uphill in stage racing. So that's another talking point. The male rider of the year, interestingly, didn't feature in the Tour de France. And I think it's the first time in our five years that we've had a rider um, win that category. He's not made any impact at the Tour de France. It was Remco Evenepoel that was chosen by the judge. But that's a bit like sometimes, I think, when the football awards come out and the player of the year gets decided. It's whoever's in form at the time that the votes are cast. And I think there was a bit of that going on, possibly with Remco even a um the young female rider of the year again uh, was incredibly uh unanimous. it was Zoe Baxted who holds four world titles across the track uh cyclocross which I know you and I both big fans of uh, Daniel um, um in the time trial and in the junior road speak, racing speak for yourself you sponsored. well i'm, race. I'm I- <laughs> um garrett thomas now this is interesting instead of the young female uh, young, young male rider of the year in 2022 we decided to flip it completely because we decided there's no point in having a young male rider of the year because they're all teenagers these days so instead we flipped that um category veteran male rider of the year goes to garrett thomas who had a quietly brilliant 2022 um and that was an interesting choice i think just ghosting his way into another podium in a grand tour um Combative female rider of the year went to Annemiek van Fluten, almost inevitably, and the most combative male rider of the year was Wout van Aert. Uh, How could it not be? Uh, A truly exceptional performance at the Tour de France. In fact, arguably one of the greatest individual rides in the entire history of that bicycle race since its inception in 1903. And then the readers rider of go the on, year go Went on go on Rem, remco remco and th- is that is that it is that 90 uh, seconds yes
1: and one of the reasons why this feature is so hated is that it is completely shambolic and we don't really count the 90 seconds i think that was around one minute 59 seconds um had oh, we been sorry. working for itv bolto james venner our director i would have had a count in my <laughs> you because you missed you missed the time cut there and um, bolto lots of categories there um, yeah there are why uh,
4: well, that's a good go. I'm not prepared for that one. Well, because there are different types of being good, right? There you know, there are different phases in a career. I like the idea of the combativity award because it opens, you know, opens up an entirely different normally it opens up an entirely different sort of subsection of overperformers. I think historically and as I say, this is our fifth year. I think that's pretty much been the domain of Julien Alaphilippe in terms of the men up till now. But, you know, how could it not go to Watt van Aert? And it's nice to have, when you look back on the page of the book in which they're actually listed, it's actually nice to see Watt van Aert's name there. Because to my mind, I think when I think back to 2022, i probably think of Watt van Aert before I think of almost anything else, uh, one way or another. And it'd be wrong if his name wasn't there. But the, the, yeah, the veteran... Male rider was something we discussed this time last year, actually. We kind of thought, well, because what, what? we just kept getting the same names nominated for male rider mm. and young male rider. And, and all this, this discussion has been doing the rounds, hasn't it? In cycling about dispensing with the white jersey and stage racing anyway. So we thought we'd get on the front foot and do what um, the Grand Tours seem unwilling to do for um, good spon- sponsorship the reasons. The qualification
1: criterion for uh, Veteran of the Year was what? It was a bit arbitrary, Daniel. It was a bit arbitrary. Yeah, it sounds suspiciously shambolic, a bit like our most of our features. Yeah.
4: Well, we did discuss it and we thought I think our first inclination was 30, which sounds ridiculous, because 30 was, you know, historically the year, you know, the age at which you just about get going um with your career. But we decided that was probably a little bit too young. Then we had to jump in a nice sort of round number. He kind of sent, you know, like, well, the next obvious step is 35. But then that's really old, isn't it? And there aren't that many. So we had to split the difference. And we settled quite arbitrarily for 32. Yeah, um, Geraint Thomas won it, which, again, you know, I don't think he would have been close to winning any of the other categories. But but it was a quietly, very effective year for Geraint Thomas, wasn't it? And... um,
1: and it's kind of nice that his name is on that on that page as well. And, but also one of the things that comes through in the roadbook, which, of course, is a very comprehensive, well, statistical and otherwise, is that there are some fantastic essays in there, um, overview of the season is... By piecing them all together, we do emerge with sort of themes of the year. I'm not sure that it was the sort of re-emergence, a year of the re-emergence of the veterans, but it, it is one thing that, as I say, um, you do get from the roadbook, which is now in its how many is its fifth, sixth year? Fifth, yeah, this fifth is the fifth year. year. Yeah. And um, well, what were some of the other themes of the year that you think are have been conveyed through? The, the pieces that you've commissioned, particularly this year, because as I say, it's notable for its outstanding essays, or usually the road book.
4: Yeah, I mean, so I think the Binium Grimai story was of great significance and sometimes, you know, that's worth flagging up. So Herbie Sykes has written a, um, a really good piece about the first um, Eritrean professional, actually, to um ply his trade in Italy back in the 1970s. Um, that that essay is called The Giant of Asmara and, um, you know, the, very much the flag bearer. But then, you know, nothing happened for 30 years. Um, but I think the Grimai story is of is of significance. I mean, it'd be really interesting to see how that develops, won't it, and whether or not it's, it's kind of, op- it'll open the floodgates in any sense or whether it'll just remain a, a trickle of success from black African cyclists. I think one of the themes that has been sort of bubbling away that came to the surface a little bit, certainly I reflected in my editor's introduction, was the um, increasing, you know, from a very dominant position, the increasing uh, sense that the Tour de France is the cycling calendar and that the other Grand Tours are really struggling. I mean, I know you were in Italy for the Giro, Daniel, I was as well, and I got a sense quite strongly that the Giro... um, it has had some lean years in terms of its profile, and I think that there was a degree of consternation and with, with the greatest of respect um, at the outcome of this year's race as well in terms of the sort of profile and the names that that race attracts that, that was a, that that's been a theme for a couple of years now. I think the giro fighting for its survival actually um, a little bit in terms of none of the none of the riders who have serious designs on the on the Tour de France really go to the giro anymore, and that's that's been fairly. That's been fairly recent yeah I
1: mean I think almost more concerning in this particular year than the winner who you know Jai Hindley is someone who has shown his pedigree over the last two or three years and may yet develop into um, one of those stars who we you know we see go head to head with lights of Pogacar and um, Vingegaard at the Tour de France but it was pretty thin gruel as far as entertainment was concerned as far as sustained entertainment throughout the three weeks wasn't it at the Giro unfortunately I I didn't say this at the time because i know that if if ever you sort of level that at a race that it and particularly when you're there it's a great privilege to to report on these races on the ground if you say that the racing itself is a bit turgid a bit stale then people tend not to like it so um i i reserve that judgment until well the the sort of safe haven of of a few months down the line but it was it wasn't great was it
4: i think i think you might have messaged me at some point using one of your favorite expressions i think you described it as a bit tippy tappy yeah, um, and and, uh, and that was and that was, yeah, a bit a bit Beaujolais nouveau, and uh, and that's kind of the sense. But it's strange. I, I know what you mean, actually, about judging something while it's ongoing. Because I was commentating on it. And obviously, that's a different function again, because you're watching everything in sort of high definition. So actually, that that sense of the suspension of the decisive day, the kind of indefinite de- suspension of the moment where the race was going to happen, was actually lent a strange kind of tension. Will it be today? Will it be today? Oh, no, it's not going to be today. Well, maybe it'll be tomorrow. Will it be today? Will it be? You know, and that but that's like only me that's kind of almost like retrofitting an excitement that perhaps yeah. wasn't there and to and some extent
1: at the risk because we're always at the risk of being well we're, we're often hypocritical about, about lots of things but you know i fawn <laughs> over this characteristic this inherent characteristic of Milan San Remo every year that yeah. it is all about the suspense and all about the fact that nothing happens and the Junior Italian this year was a bit of a Milan San Remo writ large wasn't it?
4: that's a really great yeah exactly and the Podgio was that final attack um, by Jai Hindley but boy did we have to wait for it yeah you you're right you're right i mean but the you know the interest perhaps lay elsewhere at the giro i thought, i think Mathieu van der Poel's race was kind of worth and that's that's one of the that's one of the strengths of Roadbook actually, because that in the grand scheme of things in 2022, that would be a detail that you might be forgiven for forgetting quite quickly. Actually, that Vanderpool made his debut at the Giro d'Italia and that he did what he did, and he had that big hit out late on in the race to see if he could climb, and then stepped off, um, having achieved what he did, and also having been beaten by Biniam and Girma and all those sort of things. That's the sort of stuff that I think is the real strength of the roadbook because there's no way in a digital age you would ever voluntarily go back through cycling news um, reports or kind of through the archives of pro cycling stats just to relive that moment but there is a genuine function of the road book where uh, whimsically <laughs> you might want to take it off the shelf um, and and just open it at random and you might well open it at random on the on the, the stage report from that day at the Giro d'Italia and go oh yeah that was kind of incredible what vanderpool did there mm. and i thought some of the ah oh, that was another theme you asked me the themes of racing from 2022 i think another Low key, but 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 definite theme of of twenty twenty two was the success, the relative success of the breakaway, um, the cleverness of the breakaway, and nowhere was it more exemplified, more clearly exemplified than on that stage to mm, Treviso. treviso yeah. Uh, the Giro decided that Dries de Bont mm. marshalled that breakaway that included Magnus Court and a couple of others whose names I can't. I think Davide Gaboro almost mm. inevitably was in that break as well. And that was super smart, wasn't it, the way that they, they went about that. And that, that was a pattern that we saw then taken up you know, repeatedly throughout, mm. throughout 2022. It's very interesting, I, I thought, and says a lot about how um, the peloton has levelled itself up Hasn't it? So that um, if you like the lesser teams in inverted commas, the kit they're riding, the the way they're mm. preparing, that you know, it has actually the march. Even though you get these outliers of Pogatra and Van Aert and etc. and Remco, nonetheless, I think the broad middle band of the peloton is actually a much, a much tighter affair. And so the breakaway has a chance in a, in a way um, that it, it, it hasn't previously understood that it had, you know, so I think that's quite, I think that's quite interesting. It'd be interesting to see if that continues in
1: 2023. Indeed. And Bolto also recalled in the road in for 2022 is of course a, well, a tragic event as far as we're all concerned, which was um, our colleague, our great friend and colleague, Richard Moore's passing in March. Just tell us well, how Richard is remembered in the road book in particular.
4: Well, Peter Cossins, who's a colleague of ours and a friend of ours, um, is charged every year with writing the obituaries which actually occupy... I mean, it's horrible to be talking about Richard in in these terms, but that's that's the fact of it. Um, They occupy a very special place in the road book um, and they are a substantial part of it. And Peter's research is normally... um, Uh, extraordinary and often plucks names that you've never heard of and documents their, their lives and their contribution. And normally these are people who've come to the end of a long life. That's not the case with Richard. On either counts, Richard died far too young and also his contributions on the one hand are very well known and well understood because of your work that you've done alongside him and the consummate broadcaster, podcaster that he had become. I think what's been... Uh, you know i I've, I've so peter's written an obituary in terms of richard's professional life i have written about richard in my long editor's introduction um and i think w- what i've what i've in writing it i think what i understood again was this t- horrible truth about um when people like richard leave and you know die or leave your life um only with the benefit of hindsight do you realize that the place that they occupied um was as significant as it is. And it's definitely the case with, uh, with Richard's absence, which I still find quite hard to process. Um, so, yeah, and, um, and the book this year is dedicated to um, his widow, Virginie, and his son, Maxine.
5: Tax day is coming. Oh, no.
1: Well, Rob, the moment has finally arrived after that very convoluted prelude that was the news roundup, longer than usual. A lot more news than usual this week. It's that period where things are starting to crank up again. I mean, I mentioned Rider Strava files earlier this year. Every year, with every year that goes by, I'm more and more shocked by some of the the sessions that people are putting in this time of year. I've been looking this week, 200-kilometer rides in... Um, down there on the Costa Blanca, a lot of climbing. I haven't spotted any um, any KOMs on the Col de Rates, which is I, I saw someone. I think it was Larry Warbas. Warbas, our friend, friend of the pod, lucky Larry Warbass, talked. Um, I think he posted on Twitter yesterday about um, how the or how many riders one bumps into, how many pro riders one bumps into on the Col de Rates of an afternoon in December. But I'm sure. I'm sure there'll be well, there will be some KOMs, and there'll be as ever there'll be word that will spread around the the pro cycling There's a rumor mill about who's going well, who's not going well. Um, it's it's always quite a, an interesting time of year um, from that point of view.
2: Lactate testing on coileradas you can often see a lot of the doctors up there, and I think it's a pretty painful day that uh, It's not something I'd ever wish to experience.
1: stabbing people with pins
2: stabbing mm. people's ears Th- that's pins. not the painful part as well from from what i understand it's it's the hurting yourself before that
1: well Rob. That is very much with a view to next year. Everything that's going to be going on in training camps. We are still in review mode. This is, as I've said many times, this is the episode dedicated to the team of the year, the men's team of the year for 2022. Um, I'm going to end the suspense, if there was any suspense now, and I'm going to tell our listeners that the team of the year for 2022 was none other than Jumbo Visma. Very, very easy to decide who was going to be our team of the year this year, Rob. Why? Because, well, they had 48 victories this year, which was, well, top of the tree, um, equal with UAE. UAE Mm. had the same number, 48. One more than Quickstep Alpha Vinyl. It's very rare. I don't know how many years it's been since a team exceeded the number of victories registered by Quickstep. But... Jumbo Visma did it this year. They had nine more than Ineos as well. Um, among those victories, a few highlights: two Vuelta stages, um, six Tour de France stages, and of course the yellow jersey with Jonas Vingegaard and the green jersey with Wout van Aert. Two Giro stage stages. You remember who got them, Rob? Yes, um, I can. It was the same, the, cur- the curly-haired diminutive yeah. chap. That, yes, David Gower look-alike <laughs> Gow who got both alike. of them. Kern Baumann Bauman yes. got both of them. Uh, the Dauphiné they won, Primoz Roglic, the, the Dauphiné that gave us really a sign of things to come, particularly on that final day on the, the plateau de and um, when it looked to us watching as though Jonas God was stronger than Primoz Roglic, although so it was Roglic that won the Dauphiné. They won the GP Plouet, they won Pionese with Roglic as well, they won Het Nussblad with Van Aert, and of course, how could we forget? They won the World TT Championship. Tobias Foss. That was our ride of the year. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had Tobias Foss on the podcast. There had twelve different winners in total, and it was um, it was pretty emphatic, comprehensive domination. Cross the board, wasn't it, Rob? There's one that always
2: stands out for me this year, and you have to go all the way back to March for it, it's Paris-Nice right at the start. Christophe Laporte gets into the yellow jersey, and it was like it wasn't like watching a stage race that day. It was like watching the Tour of Flanders or Ede Press, one of those races that goes up the Taienberg. And it was like rewinding the clock a few years and watching Tom Bone and his army going onto the Taienberg and preparing an attack. A little bit of a team time trial into it and one by one they peel off. I mean, three guys coming across the line like that. It was a really, really special ride. And I think that was sort of the, the illustration
1: of how good they were this year. And it was a harbinger. It was... Uh... Uh, a uh, sort of preview of what was to come at the Tour de France in the States of Calais when of course Walt van Aert romped away and won on his own and Jonas Vingergaard sort of he kind of exposed the first chinks in Tadej Pogacar's armour didn't he but Rob um, incidentally I don't think they were the best team on the women's side. Um, they had 12 wins on the women's side. Four Grand Tour stage wins with Mariana Voss, who had a very good season, of course. But um, not necessarily dominant on that front. Not sure about their speed skaters either. I, I assumed, presumed, because Jumbo Visma, should our listeners not be aware of this, they also have a speed skating team. And so ignorant am I about speed skating I just assume that they would be by far the best team in the world because it seems to me like low-hanging fruit because it's not a sport that's that's heavily invested in Outside of the Netherlands, I don't think, I don't no. believe. Um, but apparently, short not. track is
2: short track is. You can go to career. I was lucky to go to the Winter Olympics and and commentate from the the short track speed skating. Where um, if you remember, Elise Christie was was trying to do her thing for for Great Britain, and we were following that with the BBC. And I remember that career in particular were were very good. But in terms of the the long track, the big oval. You know, speed skating, You know, the one where they're sort of doing the big long strides and hands behind the back. Um, that's where you would expect Jumbo Visma to, to be dominant. They're yes, good, but ne- not- Netherlands is the big, big country in the world for that. Anyway,
1: tune in in 2023 for our new spin-off podcast, the speed skating podcast. And <laughs> um, Rob... I've been promising for what feels like hours now this interview with the mastermind, the man behind Jumbo Visma and the man behind an extraordinary story of transformation of this team that really grew from the ashes, was created from the ashes of the Rabobank team, a real institution in Dutch cycling, which kind of crumbled amid controversy and scandal and the team... In its second iteration, Jumbo Visma, or its latest iteration, had relatively humble beginnings, lest we forget. And they have grown into what I don't think anyone would dispute at the moment is the dominant force in professional cycling. The managing director is called Richard Plugger. He used to be a cycling journalist of all things. Not much information is available online about how one becomes The managing director of the all conquering world tour team having previously been a cycling journalist and believe me i have looked rob we're going to get to we're going to cross over to richard plugger now just before we do tell me how you're going to be spending christmas christmas you have nightmares about christmas dinner don't you because we've talked about your eating habits and christmas dinner in particular poses several problems for you i believe One of them sprouts, the other's gravy. Uh, Not interested,
2: Daniel, not interested. Um, Bit of of turkey, yeah, fine. Uh, No, I'll be here in Spain, actually. Uh, And Christmas dinner generally takes place on Christmas Eve. Uh, I'm going to see a couple of friends. And then um, I think I'm working on Boxing Day. And after that, I'm going to head to the mainland and spend a little time with my partner who lives up there um, for New Year. So I look forward to it. Yeah, a um, little bit of work is always always difficult to, to step away completely, but yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And of course, it's the law.
1: I'll be watching Home Alone. Oh, I you were going to be saying. I thought you were going to say Boxing Day football. Then, Rob. Well, that as well. Merry Christmas, and let's get to the main meal of the podcast. Finally. My interview with Richard Plugger, Managing Director of Yumbo What
2: a day! What a ride! is about to bring the wild factor to the Tour de France. Down the back comes Christophe
6: Laporte. Has he got what it takes? Of course he has. Jumbo Visma have got it all and it looks like they're going to take another victory. Here and here right. goes the plan. Laporte gets ready. Roglic is on the wheel. Pagaccia is on the radio. Big attack of Jonas
2: Vengergaard. A man who packed fish. Well, he's just landed a big one. And on a day where he showed a gesture of sportsmanship, Jonas Vingegaard is victorious
5: it's
2: in yellow
1: um, this is a uh, very very big for me it's uh yeah it's incredible uh... well richard first of all congratulations for being elected the cycling podcast team of the year i mean i don't think it's, it's probably not the most prestigious prize that you will have won in 2022 but you know as Garrett thomas said in our last podcast the win's a win so congratulations on that um Richard, I thought we were going to be doing this interview on your on your birthday. Um, it was originally scheduled for your birthday. I was going to bring you, as well as you know, your wonderful prize um, for team of the year, maybe maybe a cake or something. But how did you spend your birthday last year? Uh, last week it was, wasn't it? Uh, by working.
5: <laughs> of course. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. No, I uh, worked a lot. I, I spent uh, in the weekend before that before that day uh, we had a bar- party here in uh, in the house uh, with some friends and family. So, um, and and obviously I'm cycling in the morning uh, on the Sundays, and then uh, we had this party in the afternoon, but on actually on my birthday itself, uh, I was. I was working it was a busy day so
1: i mean when the team originally suggested that we do the interview on your birthday i did feel terrible but what an
5: awful way to
1: spend your birthday taking two hours no, to speak, no, to, to, speak I, to me
5: i'm used to that i'm used to that because these are the the most busy days of the year the year for me so um december november uh, are really busy so i'm used to that richard um
1: you have a wife and family would they say that you're a workaholic is that something that people would say about you now? Um,
5: no, I think uh, they they uh, they say would say that I follow my passion and um, that's uh, you know I'm I'm not working. I'm just doing uh, I'm doing my hobby every day. So um, you know how cool is that? And um, yeah. yeah, that you know what I I really like what I do. So uh, it's not really work. Uh, sometimes it feels a little bit like work, but. Uh, I try to minimise it as as much as possible. Well, well, this leads nicely
1: into the first thing I was going to ask you about. If I mean the the lay fan, the casual fan, the once a year fan, will probably not know that much about your background. One thing that people might know is that you you used to be a cycling journalist. Now, partly for for selfish reasons, because I'd like to know how one goes from being a cycling journalist to the the manager of the most successful team in the sport. Um, but I would like to. Go into a bit of detail about this, I think. Well, we know that around about well, it was 10 years ago exactly um, that Rabobank pulled out of sponsorship um, of what had been a well, long standing institution in the sport, and well, the team was left in limbo. And it was at that point that you, having been a cycling journalist, took the reins. I know you'd been working for Rabobank for a few months by that point, but but how. Does that happen? How did that happen? Um, how did it come to pass that you were the guy that put your hand up and said, "I'll do this"?
5: Ooh, uh, that's a that's a, a question with a long answer, uh, I guess. Um, you know, I was asked by the by the Bank to to come in to to change also the internal. I, I, I was there as a press officer slash communication manager, but given the fact that I. Um, I was uh, not a journalist in the last last part of uh, of my career at Sanoma. I was more an editor uh, editor slash publisher. So I uh, I led teams in, in Sanoma for a long time. So I was asked as a communication manager for the team, but also um, with the request to look at the internal organization because they um, uh, Rabobank saw already that. Um, you know, the, the structures um, and the procedures of the of the bank that were yeah more or less laid upon the team were not really working in a sports team. So they um, and, and the sports team needed to step up their game. So they were asking me, how can we, you know, how can we do that? And um, that, that was my role. And uh, and I had my ideas already on how to rebuild the, the internal uh, structure and organization of, of the team also from looking outside as a journalist with the eye of a journalist i had my my ideas about how it could be done better um so that was my my plan to work out and i was start i just started and then the Bank pulled pulled out and i said well you know you have a problem and, and i have a problem because you hired me and uh, uh, i had a good job at sanoma and uh, i'd like to take over um if that's a possibility." and um then i took over the company because it's just an an ink or a ltd or whatever you call it in english yeah um it's a company and um so i bought i bought the shares of the company uh at the end of 2012 beginning of 13 mm-hmm. and then in the end of the day uh we were um i was the i was the owner and and i could do what i want i wanted to do uh with the rainbow within the Rabobank, bank but then with my own uh, Ideas and and within my own team. So how do you end up? It's it's just it came, it came along. Let's say and and I was asked by Harold Knäbel to to come in the team. And uh, Harold yeah, Knäbel was he, the the kind
1: of liaison, wasn't he, between Rubber Bank and the actual sport? No, he
5: was the he was the managing director okay. of the of the team uh, for five years since two thousand eight, I believe, until mm. uh, two
1: thousand twelve. Yeah. Okay. And prior to this all happening. How did you, you were in your early 40s, you'd been a journalist, um, you know, you'd started off speaking to Dutch colleagues, you know, often you were the guy doing these features where you were writing and then you were writing about it, and then obviously you became more and more senior. Um, but prior to all of this happening, how did you envisage the next five or 10 years going in your life? What did you think your future was going to look like?
5: When I was uh, at, a, at a publishing, uh, at, yeah, at Sanema, you yeah, how how I saw that at that time was, uh, you know, uh, I just enjoy life like I do today, um, and I cycle a lot, and uh, and next to that, I'm I'm doing what I'd like to do, and that is making magazines and websites at the time. Uh, but then, yeah, the rainbow bank came by. So for me, it's I'm I'm not really I'm planning really way ahead with the, with the organization with with the team. Uh, but for my own life, I always, uh, you know, uh, see what's happening and and jump on uh, on things that that come across, and um, that that's what I did uh, from the beginning of my working career, and and what I what I did at that time also. So I didn't see really a long future in whatever way. Uh, it it just happened that uh, that the Bank called me and uh, and asked me for this job. So it's not really career planning or something
1: <laughs> well and, and going back even further winding the clock back even further so you're born in well you're from a place called zuttermeer is it the sweet uh, lake Zutermeer, city yeah yeah just outside yeah, the hague
5: Its, it's,
1: like, it's yeah. claim its claims to fame include um, the locomotion discotheque the first mega discotheque of the netherlands i'm sure you spent many oh happy, wow you many,
5: know a lot about yeah, it many yeah. a
1: happy hour there um also lays claim to snow world the first indoor ski slope made of real snow in Europe um yeah. so you grew up there did you
5: yeah yeah I was born there and uh it was it was when I was born there it was still a small uh, village but it's uh, close to uh, the Hague and it's uh yeah we call it the sleeping sleeping city for people working in the hague so they they lived outside the hague. uh it's a suburb of the Hake and um, until the weekends there,
1: until the weekends when they all flocked to the locomotion it,
5: before exactly. Exactly. Yeah, locomotion was later. So, okay. but uh, um when I when I was born there, I, I think they had like fifteen thousand inhabitants, and and when I left, it was a hundred thousand more. Okay. Um. So it was really growing rapidly. Um, it's a new city, let's say. And uh, yeah, the locomotion was only when I was maybe fifteen or sixteen. Perfect when it, time. And it, it started. Yeah. Perfect timing. Yeah, yeah. But it was not a nice place to go. Oh, I, okay. I I can tell you that and growing up
1: what role does sport play in your life or how does sport come into your life
5: everything um because i played football a long time i i uh, i followed every sport uh, and still do by the way um I, I played football i i cycled already way early i got my first racing bike uh, when i was six as long as i can remember sports plays a big big role in my in my life I, yeah again i follow everything every tournament every yeah every sport uh i really like a lot of rugby you know it's really small in holland but mm. i i really followed it in these days it was always on bbc uh the the, the games uh so uh, yeah i watched everything and
1: richard most of us who end up working in sport at some point or another we had visions we had dreams of becoming an actor in professional sport ourselves um, whether we had the talent or not did you did you ever have a dream to I don't know become a rugby player cyclist footballer
5: yeah of course uh, when i was a uh, young as a uh, as a footballer first um uh, and when i stopped football and, play- and started uh, cycling really with a license and, and started to race um uh, of course when i started you, you were thinking okay maybe uh you know becoming racing the tour de france once will be uh Will be a dream but uh cycling is a really hard sport and a really honest sport so uh within a couple of races i knew that there were guys way better than than i am you know the the likes of uh, uh den bakker and eric tecker coming passing by etc in races then you see uh already when you're 15 or 16 um that there <laughs> some guys have a better or a bigger motor let's say than than uh, myself so you know, it's uh, then so I like the sport still uh, and I was really happy with sometimes winning or sometimes uh, having a good result. And these are big but years. These are big years in Dutch
1: cycling because it's kind of tail end of Zuttermelk, I guess.
5: Uh, yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty yeah, successful yeah, period 80, 85 uh, yeah. 85 when I started at uh, the end of 85 86 85 was zuttermelk becoming world champion. Um, so uh, it was um indeed uh it was a big uh, you know we had races with uh, 120 uh, uh juniors uh, in in a criterium uh, uh you know everything was fully booked every race was fully booked uh, and overbooked maybe um so it was really we had a lot of races a lot of guys r- racing uh which was really good but but for me again you know it, it was uh it was re- really <laughs> i was really aware of my uh, of the level i had and i could I could play I could play a role I, I'd like to uh, I, I was not that bad on the one end but I was also way ahead, uh, behind the, the real the real big guns of uh, sport
1: so you know that you're not going to be a professional sports person um i see that you got qualifications but i think these came later as a hypnotist and a practitioner of um neuro programming but i guess you didn't do either of those things at university or what did
5: you do and what were the first steps in your career in um well i did uh first i went to a technical high uh, yeah we call it a higher technical school uh, and then afterwards i went to university i didn't finish that um uh, university but uh i started to work as a journalist because i started working yeah as a journalist uh, from when i was 18 as a as a side job next to studying let's say and um, um yeah from, from there on i worked uh yeah from 18 on first for the papers uh in the in the you know the regional uh, papers then to the uh, country papers like uh, um, and and then to magazines so and, and with a with a short break uh, because I had to go in the army um, but that also gave me the opportunity to, to build up uh, my own position as a freelance writer uh, because I had to work in the nights mostly in the in the army and on the days I could either cycle or um, or uh, write for for magazines and making magazines and books and things like that uh, different um um uh, uh, people i worked for uh companies magazines i worked for so yeah I, I i got the opportunity to build up yeah let's say a career in in different areas and um and also there i have to admit you know i was not i was not uh, the the writer um in in the sense of uh, you know i have uh, i have i have had colleagues in from these years who were now writing still writing books and and if i read them i'm like you know the way they write i cannot you know that they they have uh, uh something uh to it w- which is better than i i was but what i found out was that i was really good at uh at organizing things uh i i can write a story um it is it has a proper level but I was better at, at, uh, at you know, organizing things and bringing things together, bringing a team together, bringing a magazine together. And also think of new things mm-hmm. like, for example, a website, because yeah, you, you can imagine that in the uh, early 2000s or maybe the end of the 90s, a website was something, you know, people, people said, uh, yeah, a website, it will go away. And uh, in these years, I, I already saw the opportunity of websites and, and building it, and that's how we built uh, uh, feeds.nl, uh, the ma- from the mag- magazine feeds uh, bicycling, let's say, um, and we, I think we were one of the first with a, with a really big website uh, in the, in the bicycle industry. Mm.
1: And so rich when you do take over at blanco imposter syndrome is something you perhaps could have suffered from the, the the sense that maybe the riders wouldn't trust you they wouldn't have confidence in you not just the riders the coaches the directors as well also professional cycling 10 years ago was a probably a bit less open and and, yep. and it still had the trauma of arms i mean the armstrong trauma was playing out and it was a reason why uh rubber bank had pulled out so there was that whole environment or that whole sense of 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 paranoia suspicion mistrust
5: yeah yeah well when i came in uh obviously um uh, i was seen as an as an outsider uh probably and but but i knew enough um uh, to also know know a lot and and understand a lot and uh uh, but people saw me indeed as a, as a kind of an outsider and, and maybe there was some mistrust that, uh, later for sure that was the case but you know it's also an advantage if you want to change things um, you can look m- way more from outside in uh, and you see patterns and you see the way people are working uh, you, you know if you know enough um, to to uh, yeah to, to to take your actions and to, and to to make your actions then then it's uh, it really helps and uh people you know in an in an organization you if you want to change um normally it's not coming from the people who are working already for a long time internally because you don't want to change you know the, the nature of people is to not change you know I, there's so so much con- conservatism in organizations and when someone from outside comes in and who understands the inside but also has the 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 fresh feel from outside um that really helps and yeah you know for me uh, there was mistrust and and things like that but i i don't you know i don't care i have my own plan and uh i wanted to to bring yeah to to bring it to the next level and yeah, that and and some some people believe or most of the people believed in that and some people didn't believe in that and, and they hated it or they, there was mistrust from these people. But yeah, that's that's a, most of the time a small group who want to to really keep keep it as it was and, and try to to sabotage a little bit uh, the way forward. That's why I always say I have to realize and people who are leading organizations. In Holland, it's, it's uh, in, in Dutch. It's an alliteration. Uh, it's uh, every every change is perceived as being um, a, a wrong, let's say, even if it's an improvement. So, uh, elke verbetering is een verslechtering, zelfs een uh, verbetering, uh, of elke verandering is een verslechtering, zelfs een verbetering. It's in Dutch, mm. and and it's uh, you know with three V's. Um, and and you ha- as a leader, you have to understand that people will will see change always. As I ah, know, uh, we cannot do that. The way we work today is is uh, is really good. So so don't change. So and that's uh, that's how it worked as well in uh, in the team. Tax day is coming. Oh no.
1: Just looking at the, you know, sort of different phases you went through. I mean, certainly the first couple of years seem to me to have been about survival. You went from, well, from one setback to another in terms of Belkin pulling out and and various other difficulties that you had to contend with. And then, you know, Lotto Jumbo come on board, but the team then is almost entirely Dutch. It has in 2015 has six wins. Um, which certainly was not didn't really correspond to the team's budget and the team's expectations, but then you know you start to you have these couple of talents that that really emerge, uh, maybe unexpectedly. Uh, Klonevagen started to win a lot.
5: Klonevagen, the Dutch champion,
1: claims the victory. And uh, Primoz Roglic came on board, and started to win a lot as well. And then in the latter phase, sort of from when Vizma I think took over as co-sponsor, it became about kind of thriving and pursuing the very lofty goals that you have since achieved and are achieving at the moment is that is that fair um a, a sort of breakdown of, of those 10 years sort of survival then kind of becoming a, a normal team consolidating becoming a team that was achieving the results that as i say was in line with the budget and and then it's been about excellence would you say
5: yeah 100 it was uh i always break it down to uh to uh, in three parts let's say it's a. Uh three-year survival you know i could only look at uh, do we exist next year or not um it started with the first year of course as blanco uh, then when lotto and jumbo came in uh, the first year was really bad that but that was also the combination of all the uh, uncertainty and the mistrust let's say etc internally that came uh, all together in 2015 um Where we had we hit really rock bottom in in all in all senses in in, in, in uh, results. Uh, although uh, Robert Gesink still had a really good result in tour de France, but in results, but also in how we worked, etc. And that was also the reason why uh, Marin zeeman and myself said at the end of 2015, beginning of 16, let's 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 look at how we would organize it as we thought we would or reorganize the the Rabobank team because. Also, Marijn started in 2012 yeah. uh, and we had the same ideas. And then we started really to and we could work to, uh, with uh, towards a better future because we had much uh, uh, sponsors like Jumbo who right away said, you know, either we, we sponsor or we don't do it. And if we sponsor, uh, then, then you know, we go all in and, and we we roll up our sleeves and we go for it. And that that gave us a mindset of, okay, now we can really build what we want to do. So then we had three years of, let's say, rebuilding uh, the the internal structure. uh, The coming of Groenewegen and and, uh, Roglic was really important because both are, uh, we saw right away, are winners and were winners. And they both said, um, even though we were the worst team at that time, they both that uh, we want to win with this team, and and they brought in a kind of winning feeling yeah, and energy, yeah. to the organization. Yeah, and then we had three years. Uh, we we were the 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 smallest budget in 2015 of the world tour, and uh, and and we still were uh, around that that area, maybe 14th, 15th uh, world tour uh, uh, rank, budget ranking in 2018 and 19. So we we did it really with a low budget. Mm um so these years were where the the building phase the uh let's say 16 17 18 where we uh, um yeah brought our culture to life and then from from 1819 onwards it it was yeah the, the the organization is as it is today a really to my opinion really strong organization with a strong culture especially uh where we built uh, uh success upon and, yeah, the, the the budget also grew, but but we are still by far not the the biggest budget uh, team in in the in the world tour. So uh, yeah, we are really proud that we can do this uh, even with uh, with a smaller budget than the real big budget teams that are there. Richard, in that
1: two thousand and fifteen, let's take that year um, version of the team. Give me an example of something that you guys were doing at the time that you thought was right. Um, and you have well since realized with hindsight you look upon today and think that was totally wrong and that was one reason why we weren't succeeding
5: yeah well, uh, we were focusing too much on on details you know it, uh, it was the, the the years that everybody looked on uh uh what what sky did uh from 10, 20, 20, 2010 onwards was uh the, the marginal gains mm. of uh Dave Railsford, let's say what he always was saying. See, people would still uh, but, say that it is ne- we're still
1: in that era. But I, go on, explain, explain.
5: Yeah, but 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 uh, what we did wrong was that you know the marginal gains only uh, are effective if the basis is is in order. Yeah. And um, uh, what we did wrong, I think, was was uh, that we we looked already into the details where the basis was not in order yet. And and from that moment, we, we realized that we should first train properly. <laughs> we should first sleep and eat properly. So these three things, the basis of, of being an athlete, should be uh, really good. And, of course, the material should be, uh, um, the, the basic uh, material should be in order. So um, that's how we started, you know, by, by just bringing it back, uh, uh, throw away all the all the detailed uh, discussions and and on on marginal gains, we <laughs> it, everybody was doing uh, trying to to copy paste uh, Sky at the time, and we said no, we we should not copy paste that part of it. Mm. We should look okay. Do we train enough? You know, it starts with training five hours a day or whatever, and do your do your training uh, good, and 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 make your position on the bike, uh, etc. Make it good, just in cycling. You know, start cycling, and obviously you had some
1: big successes with recruitment. I mean, you just mentioned Knevegan there and Roglic a few minutes ago, and as you said, they weren't necessarily they weren't guys that everyone was looking at. Um, so there was a there was certainly some very good judgment there on on the part of on your part maybe on the part of your direct support, team, Franz Marsen, for example, and I I was heavily involved with Roglic. Um, but do you ever reflect on the role that luck might have played and generally? plays in the fact that it was your team rather than another team that had the opportunity or, or found that opportunity to sign for example Roglic
5: well um you know I, there, there's a skill um and it's 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 uh, if you have luck on the one end and, and skill on the other hand Uh, luck always plays a role in in sports but you want to be as as uh as close to the to the skill side as as possible and that's why uh on recruiting exactly this is also one of the things we did in 2015 and 16 is talking to the army and the special uh the special forces because um they put in a lot of money to to educate someone and brings give him schooling etc to to make him a special course but uh they want to have as little dropouts as possible because it costs a lot of money to to educate someone and then after six months he's dropping out so that's that's a big shame of the money and the budget so we asked them how do you do that because if you want to have as many uh, non-dropouts but but succeeding uh, people how do you do that? how do you know that up front and that's how we looked at things. And and there's a, a big mentality thing. There's a physical thing, of course. A lot of testing. What we do. A lot of talks with with the riders. We are and also with with Primoz, for example. Yeah, it was s- someone from Slovenia. You know, we were like, um, yeah, uh, who? How good can he be? You know, that that was a little bit. But then we did all these tests, all these talks. I I spoke to him uh, extensively. But all, all the others as well in the team to get a good sense. So um, and then we made the decision. Then we really discussed him, and and then he came into the the team, and he wanted to come to the team, but also for us, th- this was the more or less together with Dylan Groenweg, it was also the, more or less the the first riders which we um, looked at as if they are special forces <laughs> trainees, let's say, uh, and we wanted we we didn't want them to drop out so we we put a lot of energy in there and we developed that way of working in in the years after uh to make sure that that we have uh, as little uh, dropouts as possible but as, as yeah as many uh, successful um additions to the team as and and sometimes we we have these talks we we do uh, uh an identity test we do uh, you know all kinds of talks with with all the writers yeah, and and sometimes we say, okay, yeah, you know, it's a good rider, but it doesn't fit in our our he doesn't fit in our 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 team, so we don't do it. I think it's it's not really luck, but it's also a really skill that we um, uh, and of course we make mistakes. <laughs> uh, that's where the luck come in, <laughs> also comes in, but uh, I think we are we are pretty good uh, at the moment at uh, finding the right people for our team. Uh, that are also fit in our culture
1: it's interesting you make the military connection because people will assume in, in environments like that, that sometimes there is a, a template there is a profile there's a kind of cookie cutter identikit of the perfect guy but i know that for example marine Zaman and probably you as well you have kind of prided yourself and you're interested in being able to accommodate different personality types i know marine for example is inspired by phil jackson the legendary chicago bulls coach and and he was someone who famously and if anyone's seen the last dance they'll have seen what he did with for example dennis rodman um that that is also a part of your culture isn't it um that it's it's not just about getting the guy who is always going to be disciplined and who doesn't have any peripheral vision and is is going to be a robot you need to be able to accommodate different personality.
5: Types. No, it's, it's uh, for us, it's b- because you, you have to create a team, you know, and you, you don't want uh, in the tour de France, for example, eight, uh, the same persons, you know, you, you need to have different uh, types of type of people in the in the, in the team. And, and uh, so we are indeed we don't look for robots, uh, maybe some people think, um uh, uh, that but uh we we look in, indeed in 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 different personalities and and we think uh, uh you know the, the a personality can add a lot to a team even if it's sometimes perceived as a difficult personality but for us the most important thing is that we uh, say everything straight we put everything on the table as we say it so we'd like to to discuss everything without becoming personal but we want to talk about the subject, and um, and and maybe that's a, a big uh, difference. Why why we can work also sometimes w- with people who are maybe not really. Uh, working in other teams but um, uh, for us it's yeah like the Phil Jackson uh, Rodman was was really a difficult person to to work mm. with uh, many teams but Phil Jackson uh, I won't many, ask
1: you who the Dennis Rodman of Yumbo Visma is maybe you'd like to tell <laughs> us
5: I don't know no no but, but, no everybody is a Dennis Rodman because everybody has his own way of uh, myself as well you know we are all different people but if you realize that uh, what the impact of me on you is and the other way around and you can discuss the topic without getting personal you know you can you can uh, uh, take out a lot of personal personal uh, uh problems if you would like to to, uh, to put it that way we are dutch you know so we, we say it how it is uh, to everybody and that's why sometimes we have some someone uh, up front where we think ah Maybe he has big problems with, with really telling it how it is, because if I tell you how I feel about you or how I feel about your actions, not about you as a person, but about your actions, but you are not doing the same towards me, then we cannot really build a, a, a true uh, relationship and also not a, 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 a growing relationship where we, all, where we both get better. Yeah, people call it blunt or call it rude or whatever, but we see it as, you know, tell me, just tell me what, what did I do wrong, what, I, what can I do better? And we will do it towards you. And that's uh, that's especially how we look at things and how Marijn Zeeman is uh, is also uh, always with respect for the person, but, but uh, you know, looking at the actions and, and, and the behavior of people and, and try to, to get that better.
2: He's here in the Pyrenees, high up at Autocam, approaching the finish line. And on a day where he showed a gesture of sportsmanship that defines this sport, Jonas Vingegaard is victorious in yellow, barring any bizarre turnaround, he's on his way to winning the Tour de France.
1: Going back a year and thinking about well, this period a year ago and the sort of genesis of this great season that you did have, what are some of the things maybe, well, the results of the of maybe frank conversations that had happened as a result of 2021 that then contributed to the great year that you had? The, the, what were you talking about? What were the big sort of um, the big guiding principles going into 2022? but you'd maybe lessons you'd learn from 2021.
5: Yeah. I think uh, that, that we should look at, uh, at the tactics of cycling and look at the, uh, at our plan and um, that, that, uh, you know, we have, we have great riders, but uh, even great riders need, need help and need a good tactics plan. And um, I think we, we put in a lot of effort in uh, looking at uh, uh how does a cycling race go uh you know uh, how let's analyze that and and um so that that was one of the things among many others because we have always a lot of um, <laughs> process goals uh you know we have result goals for next year but also process goals to make make the organization better and uh also one of the the discussions was that that we we should you know step up our game also on the material material side last year so that's what we did this year. Um, you know, thinking differently, uh, we, we raced, as you could have seen maybe uh, in the Tour de France with different bikes. Uh, the riders were were on different bikes. Uh, uh, Wout van Aert even changed um, uh, on top of the, what was it, the Calibier, uh you know, his bike. Because we know that the S5 is a really fast bike uh, on the flats and, and in the descent. And, and the R5 is a good climbing bike. But... You know, thinking that way um, also was one of the of the things we uh, we uh, yeah we, we discussed last year among again among among many other things.
6: <laughs> and here goes the plan. Laporte gets ready. Roglic is on the wheel. Pagaccha is on the radio, asking for teammates.
1: You're talking about tactics, Richard, and you've mentioned a few times this notion of total cycling total football of course was a concept was familiar to anyone who knows the history of Dutch football and when you talk about it sometimes it's sounded or looked as though almost an ideological romantic idea that you want to pursue just you know for the sake of entertainment but it sounds as though from what you just said that the team Particularly, you know, a year ago, you, you thought about this concept also as a way to achieve your goals, as maybe the best way to achieve your goals. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Elaborate on that.
5: Yeah, maybe. It, um You know, I said that in a, in an interview with Lake keep and and uh, because I, I, the, we were discussing this already a couple, a couple of weeks, uh, months with uh, with Marianne Zeman and, and others, Christiane Nirmal, etc. Um, you know, we we thought that again what i said you know we have good riders individuals but but doing it together and really going all in with everybody all or, all or nothing um could could change uh, the tactics of a race and um you know i think that that's um that i i made a analogy uh to to total football of uh michels in in the in the, the 70s when uh the or the mackenau uh orange or what is it the orange orange machine um it was called the dutch football yeah it it was just just a phrase which which on,
1: uh, for, for anyone who doesn't know anything about football Dutch football just very very briefly tell us what f- total football was
5: yeah yeah the, 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 well in the in the 74 and 78 uh, Holland became twice second in the world championships but uh, especially the way they did it uh, you know playing playing football with uh everybody either uh, um uh, defending or uh, uh attacking the whole team it was a big difference at the time at that time um with uh, how it how it worked before that you know the, the it was a change in tactics uh, of uh, of the, the the system that was there before in in football um and and that's that's more why i called it that way because we wanted to tactics and try to change the the normal tactics of a team and and look at not not because of the change but do it better And um, and that's that's how that's why we wanted to to do really all in with the whole team um, being united in in the races. And you've seen a couple of couple of great examples of this, because maybe in December when I gave this interview to keep it, it looked a little bit like, uh, wow, uh, what an arrogance or whatever. But if you see the, the stage in Paris Nice, where we become one, two and three or um, uh, the stage in uh, towards the uh, uh the Col de Garnon stage, so let's say.
6: Jumbo Visma with Laporte, Roglic and Wengergaard. In that sandwich is Tadej Pogacar. He's the filling that they've managed to have with them.
5: These stages, you can really see what I meant with that already in December and what, you know, Marijn and Christian and and the others... Really did uh, 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 get across with the riders how to do that, and 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 how the riders performed it. And it's yeah really incredible.
6: and an attack on the left-hand side, an immediate attack by Vingegaard as he strikes to try and get rid of the rest of the riders.
5: People tell me, congrats with um, with uh, with the win in the in the Tour de France. But the most important sentence comes after that and that's that, and especially with the way you did it. And here he
2: goes mm-hmm. again on the right.
6: Big attack of Jonas Wengergaard. He goes clear. Immediately onto the wheel goes Geraint Thomas on the yellow jersey. I don't remember ever seeing no. this in all the time I've watched the Tour de France it's almost 14 years And here of he age. goes again. Roglič hits him again.
5: People recognize how we did it and 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 that it was really spectacular. And that for me is a little bit uh, the, the connection to total football, because then in the, in the 70s, the, the Dutch football team was really, yeah, the way uh, people would like to play football and watch football. You know, it was not about the result, but also about the way, uh, the way it went. And um, so that's, that's for me the, the biggest compliment for our team, that people really liked it last year, how we did it.
6: Attack of Jonas Wengergaard, going for glory. Going for yellow, the yellow jersey has now got to fight with everything he's got. Jonas Wengergaard, this rider has put his team on the front today. They've attacked and attacked and attacked. Pogacar, the lights have gone out on the yellow jersey. He's cracked on the Col de Granon. The story, the mystery of the Col de Granon that cracked the legendary Bernaino has cracked Tadej Pogacar.
1: During the Tour de France in particular, there was a lot of incomprehension, particularly about Wout van Aert's role. And there were a lot of people talking about ego and saying that he was riding with his ego and that um, he was pursuing personal goals that were going to be to the detriment of the team. You know, often at the Tour, when we were speaking to the director sportifs, um, I don't know whether they were being cagey or they didn't want to reveal everything about the tactics on particular days. But sometimes... It was difficult for them to articulate this, what you're articulating now. But it sounds as though this was all part of a. Even the way Wout van Aert was riding, while it looked kind of whimsical on the spur at the moment, this was all very much part of a plan.
5: Hundred percent, hundred percent, and and of course during the in uh, during the race we we don't want to tell, and, and up front we don't want to tell as much as as we we can do afterwards. But we were laughed at uh, in the beginning of the year that we wanted to go for, for yellow and green in the Tour de France. It was impossible. And uh, But but we had really good good talks with our, all the riders and we knew exactly what the role of Wout van Aert could be. And if someone was not selfish and if someone uh, was was working really hard for the team, it was Wout van Aert.
2: What a day! What a ride! and that, is about to bring the walt factor to the tour de france three second places now a win wearing the yellow jersey
5: he was maybe the best uh domestique ever uh for a yellow jersey winner um in the past tour de france so um you know it, it, and and that was because we had the, all these talks and all these uh tactical meetings up front to make sure that how we could how we would yeah bring it on um that 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 it could be uh successful if again if everybody puts 100 percent in to me it, it was also um yeah sometimes funny to to see the 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 comments and 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 everything during the race because we knew we had this plan and of course it has to work out eh? in the end of the day we can also we could have also lost it but uh, on the other hand, if you don't go all in, like on the Galibier uh, uh, stage, uh, that was the, the 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 tipping point. Let's say where we went all in. We could have lost maybe six minutes uh, on Pogacar and lost the tour, uh, you know, because we we gave everything that day to make sure. But you know, it turned our way, and it, it turned our way because everybody was there to help, even or not even, but uh, primos played a really really big role in in that victory in that in that day and uh, like like all the other riders as well you know uh, laporte uh, waiting on the telegraph etc uh, etc et everything worked out as we uh, as we planned and um so yeah it, it's uh, it's n- nothing to do with selfishness it was really a team uh, from everybody well Bernard Dropped Quinn
3: Simmons, that with just over 30 kilometres left to go. Was it possible that he would be able to somehow find a way back? Hart van art though, unable to sustain that time trialling over the distance that he'd already been out.
1: And other days, Richard, when it was maybe more difficult to see well, what the plan was or why it, it why you thought it would have worked, like the stage to Longue, I think stage six, where van Aert was on his own effectively in the end for well, 150 kilometers what what purpose was that
5: supposed to serve yeah well not not everything is uh, like i said a hundred percent skill is not always uh, sometimes you have to have the luck that, that you have more riders with you um and you can bring it to the end and th- that was not the case that day but uh, yeah it's also cycling and you cannot you know just just give up like some riders did by the way but you know it's also being uh you know uh, going into a plan and and try to try to get as far as you can and, uh, and that was that day and uh, yeah yeah it, it again it didn't we we wanted to have like like let's say five or six or maybe seven riders in in this group which didn't work out yeah mm-hmm. that's the luck luck part <laughs> which uh didn't help us that day mm-hmm. Richard,
1: you've you've got to this position as a team. You are, I think, most people would agree, the the dominant force in professional cycling. Certainly, you were this year, and yet, maybe because of the partly because of the way you ride, um, you haven't attracted some, the same kind of. Well, we talked about mistrust earlier, but the same sort of hostility or lack of well popularity that some teams in with this status for example in the sky before them um have have had to endure had to put up with as someone who who's came from the media came from communications is was that is that foremost in your thinking as well that the team needs to be well liked I mean we've seen the evolution of someone like Primoz Roglic who went from a guy who you know when I used to interview him in sort of 2008 1718 it was really like getting blood out of a stone it was really difficult and you got the sense he didn't like the media um but the team generally is still popular is still well liked not only in the netherlands but elsewhere is this as i say something that you've worked hard on
5: yeah 100% uh, you know my my company the company name is called blanco and uh, it, it's a uh, blanco with a purpose it's, it's blanco twofold um we we wanted to leave uh the, the past behind uh, it was 2013 when i uh, started this company um we wanted to leave the past behind and, and start with a blank sheet um you know uh in terms of everything that happened before that uh, and one of the things how you can can leave that behind is by being really transparent um Already in the first year, we had uh, we had this docu- documentary um, being made by our team, um, uh, by the Dutch um, uh, television, the, let's say the Dutch BBC, um, and um, they made this documentary. They were twenty four seven with our team, and I said, you know, the, the doors are open. Just take a look, make a big big uh, big film about this, and. You can see everything you want you can you can be at every meeting everywhere you know and we had gopros in the bus et cetera et cetera and that's how we still work you know we we still do that the second part of the why it's called blanco it's also because we wanted to build a cycling team as was never done before especially the transparency thing is what we are what we are working on really hard um internally also with the riders from the beginning you know we said um you know, just be open about what you, what you, what you want to tell. And of course, you have to first internally be really aligned with everybody. But then, if that's, if that's the case, then open the doors and everybody can can take a look inside. And of course, you know, we don't tell too much upfront about our text tactics of the of the Tour de France. But that's a different story, I think. Um, in the Tour de France, also this year, we had two uh, camera crews, uh, Amazon and Netflix, with us, who were there 24/7. You know, and and they they can see everything. And we try to be as open as possible on all difficult topics. We do that uh, we do that uh, internally, but also ex- externally. If someone wants wants to ask me something, me or someone else, uh, about anything, we will we will give an answer. You know, we will. We will answer that and be, yeah we have nothing to hide we have nothing to to and uh, to not disclose so we can tell everything and we can discuss everything and we're not yeah you know uh, try to to avoid these topics or something so that maybe that's that's how we how we got this to this position
0: the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science
3: thank you very much to science in sport our longest term supporters i'm really delighted to say that science in sport are continuing to support the cycling podcast into 2023 the ink is drying on another contract as i speak i think and uh, we are delighted that the partnership continues i was having a look at the science in sport dot com website a little bit earlier today and I noticed the 12 days of festive offers still has a few days to run a different offer every day across 12 days leading up to Christmas and it made me wonder whether science and sport have ever considered or perhaps they have done in the past a physical advent calendar because I reckon that could be a real winner I know that I've got a bit conservative in my choices when it comes to the Science in Sport products. I've stuck to what I know. I've stuck to what I know I like. And I've not really ventured off the beaten track for a little while. So I reckon an advent calendar with 24 different products in would give everyone an opportunity to sample a lot more of the Science in Sport range. Just imagine that, a different Science in Sport goodie. Every day in December leading up to Christmas Day, if the science and sport marketing chiefs are listening to that, they can have that idea for free. Um, I mean, I obviously haven't invented it. Lots of retailers do a physical advent calendar with great goodies inside. But who knows, maybe a science and sport one could be considered in the future. Have a look at the Science in Sport 12 days of festive offers at scienceinsport.com. And likewise, a big thank you from Daniel and I and everyone at the Cycling Podcast for Science in Sport's support throughout 2022. We look forward to working with you again in 2023. side to the line, it's past Pedersen of course Roglic has done, the, done a tremendous job and look at the retrieval, oh and down goes Roglic at the very last touch of wheels, Pedersen takes it ahead of Ackerman, then comes Danny Van Pommel and then uh, comes Fred Wright and it is Roglic that remounts and will bring this in, that's Pachier I believe that uh, throws the bike to the line this time by...
1: We have had it... I mentioned Primo's and his uh, evolution into a very, very popular rider um, it seemed... In September, I think it was in September, out of character when he crashed out of the Vuelta a España and then he released this statement which seemed to target Fred Wright in particular and it was released. it was released on the team website. Just tell me from your point of view what role the team had in that, whether you still now in hindsight think it was justified that he has a point and that you did that as well as you could have done it.
5: Well, maybe uh, uh you know there there's always um you have the the messenger and and you have the one who receives the message and uh because of the the way um people uh, got this message across uh, and and they re- responded to it we we could have brought it a, a, uh, maybe a difficult uh, maybe a, di- a little bit different um but uh, all in all the, the the basic for me is that um i know that of all the crashes in in the in the peloton are caused by riders Uh, if it's if it's intended or not you know it it is uh, uh, you know there's a lot of talks about safety and uh, uh, there's a lot of talks about uh, barriers and things like that, uh, which is also really important that that uh, that should be safe, but the behavior of riders is also um uh something we should keep in mind and uh, and i think that was the point that that primos uh, uh wanted to make and especially and uh, at least the team wanted to make is that we should look all in all not not blaming anyone uh if it's intentional or not um that that uh, people crash but to uh to make to make people aware that that behavior sometimes um, yeah, if you don't do some things, it could avoid uh, a crash. And, um, you know, especially if it's not about winning a stage or uh, or about, uh, uh, you know, a really a top result, but it's about uh, a, a somewhat lesser uh, result. Why would you take the risk uh, by crashing yourself or someone else? um and that was more or less uh, i i saw all the results of the uci uh they, they are they have a database now uh of the of the past two years and again like 50 percent of all the crashes is caused by the behavior of riders and it's a race so some some of these incidents cannot be avoided maybe but uh, many of them can be avoided by by different behavior and that was i think what well, at least I I I'd like to to uh to to bring to to the world, but apparently it was uh yeah it was picked up uh, in a different yeah way. I mean
1: I probably don't need to tell you Richard, but the, the sticking point with this particular issue was that most people could not see what Fred Wright had done wrong, even with the overhead shots they couldn't see that he deviated. Um, in you know in a season when you could probably find a hundred examples of riders. Behaving, riding irresponsibly, and this was not one of those. That was what most people would say, and I guess I would say as well.
5: Yeah, well, uh, that, that there, there you might, you know, you can. Uh, someone is coming from um from the front and going to the right, and and someone is seeing someone coming, and he's because he's coming from from behind, and and it, I, I don't say it's intended or whatever. I don't want to blame anyone for anything um but um you know you have to be aware of 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 your surroundings and the people in, in your surrounding and and um, um you know it's not about wrong uh, in the sense of uh he uh, someone did something wrong with the intention to crash someone but you can also you know if you're on the high road and and uh, on the highway and and you see a car coming um suddenly going uh, slower than than you and you are coming from behind what do you do you will you will not push through uh, and that's what maybe not in this particular case but in in general it happens a lot that people are pushing through where it's not uh possible or where where it it might be causing um uh, causing uh, problems either way there was a big crash you know and Primoz Roglic and the the, the Vuelta uh, Primoz Roglic crashed the Vuelta was uh how do you say that beheaded let's yeah, say
1: yeah.
5: yeah yeah compromised you know because there there was a big fight coming up between mm. Primoz and uh, even the pool even pool played it really well with his uh flat tire he had already for a couple of kilometers and he used the three kilometer rule which was really smart of him and but you know there were we saw that there were chances for us, and I don't say we we would have won it, but but there was big chances, and everybody saw that. And the Welta suddenly was was yeah, beheaded, Let's say because uh, yeah, then it was more or less over, and must played a big role, of course. But but I think together with Primoz, he could could the uh, the life <laughs> the life could have made the the life of even pool even worse. You know, and that was a little bit uh, the, the the that that was the yeah the the thing Primus wanted to point out. You know, let's uh, think a little bit of ourselves. And to me, for me personally, it's it's not about blaming anyone. It's about guys, come on, let's let's think of this. Let's let's educate ourselves and and elevate our behavior. And sometimes, you know, uh, not uh push through uh but but uh break a little that, that would be my personal uh uh message
1: so
5: oh, time, to Hilbert.
4: the winner of the Tour de France gets to say a few words to us Jonas the floor is yours. <laughs> uh,
5: this is a uh, very very big for me it's uh yeah it's incredible um <laughs>
1: There's been some coverage, some sort of teeth gnashing in Denmark about the fact that Jonas Vingegaard has has led a pretty quiet life since winning the Tour de France. He wasn't, I don't know the circumstances of him not being at the Tour de France presentation or not being included in the Tour de France presentation, there being no video link or anything like that. But um, just on this issue of, obviously it's a difficult balance to strike between exposing the Tour winner, the the sort of unofficial de facto world champion of cycling is the the tour winner and um well exposing them and protecting them so talk to me a little bit about what you've tried to do with Jonas over the last two or three months
5: yeah, we, we, uh, first of all, the Tour de France presentation, he was already, uh, towards this criterion in, uh, the Tour de France organizer, uh, also a criterium in Singapore and they invited him there. So, uh, he could not be in, in Paris, uh, strangely enough. But, um, no, what, what we try to do is to, uh, to work, um, uh there, there's two things that you can be completely busy with all kinds of you know celebrations presentations interviews etc uh, for a couple of months and and forget about resting and training and you know the basics of of our sport that's one and the second second reason why we protect this is also because there's also a kind of inflation <laughs> as uh, uh maybe of of his um of his result you know, if you show up everywhere, wherever, if, if someone calls you and you're right away there, you know, it's, it's, uh, the, 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 value of your, your, you as a person, you as a star, you as a true friends winner is going down because you show up everywhere and you give everybody this, this moment of, of, yeah. uh, you know, joy where you can get the picture. So th- that's the second part of it. But the first part and the most important part for me is that uh, as many, um, other, um, Tour de France winners or big stars of, of in other sports showed us is that, you know, after winning such a thing, you can, you can easily lose a lot of energy in a lot of things that doesn't matter for your next year. You know, you can celebrate if you're 35 and you stop uh, with cycling, you can still celebrate uh, a lot of these uh, things. But now it's it's all about uh, defending the Tour de France, maybe next year, or going into the Giro, maybe next year, or whatever. But the next race is, is your primary uh, uh, concern, and not uh, you know showing up uh, at a presentation or whatever. So that's how we try to do that.
1: Okay, um, and Richard, well, just thinking about next year and I was just looking at the sort of contract situ- situation in your team. Um, I mean, it looks as though you're pretty well set for quite a long time with a lot of these riders and the backbone of the team should be in place for a while. I know that there's been speculation about Primoz, but he has got three more years. I think I'm right in saying um, on the team. Um, Tobias Foss yep, is, is, is the only one of your sort of headline riders, the new world time, tra- time trial champion, whose contract is expiring imminently at the end of next year. But is that how you see it? That the stars, the main, the, the king pieces um, in your sort of chess set are all going to be there for quite some time, including Primoz, despite the speculation. Yeah.
5: No, no, it's, it's, um, but but we believe in that. Uh, we believe in keeping the team together as long as possible makes your team uh, stronger. Uh, of course, it has to fit in and everybody has to uh, to be happy um but that's why we have long term contracts with with all the riders um because we don't want to be in this situation that we every year tell them uh yes or no or you know we want to build together and we want to really build a relationship we really build want to build the team together and and yeah uh, you know all successful teams um you spoke about uh, Phil Jackson um you know also in baske- in uh, in basketball uh, you know all the really successful teams uh, had a backbone that was really long together you know and adding some sometimes someone or someone will leave sometimes th- that's always the case but if your your strong backbone is is the same for a couple of years you've seen that by sky, uh, with sky as well by the way um you know, it's um, it's it, it makes your your team stronger, because you understand each other better, you can, you, you can, you can make improve uh, faster, um, and better than than, uh, you know, when you have to, to to do it all over again with new people uh, all the time.
1: Well, Richard, I think that is just about well probably about as much as our listeners can take of me anyway, um, I'm going to thank you for your time. I'm going to congratulate you on a fantastic 2022. Excited to see what you guys have got in store for us in 2023. Um, how are you spending Christmas, Richard?
5: Uh, I go skiing uh, to uh, to France. We go
1: to the snow dome maybe in. Where, no, 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 no,
5: no. We go to the to the Alps and um, uh, t- together with the family. So we have this is the, uh, probably the only week in, in the year that nothing happens because the rest of the year is 24 seven for me but uh it's the only week uh that nothing happens and uh i'll try to really uh enjoy skiing uh enjoy uh life together with my family my my two kids and my wife so
1: excellent maybe a nice bottle or two of pinot noir i know you're a, you're a bit of a wine fan i know it's a lot of burgundy on your instagram feed a lot of whiskey as well actually
5: yeah <laughs> yeah i'd like the the yeah yeah i'd like the whiskey from scotland and uh but yeah some some wine uh, nowadays but not too not too much yeah because i'm also uh doing sports so just a good glass of pinot noir or bernardus uh, that's always good you know and uh, and a good uh, mcallen or uh, or a Laphroaig or something like that it's um yeah it's always good well
1: let's hope santa brings you something nice yeah. richard i'm gonna yeah. say thank you very much and merry christmas
5: again yeah too you too the Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Byrne.